This episode was recorded on Tuesday, 24 November, before the events of 27 November and the assassination of Iranian nuclear scientist Mohsen Fakhrizadeh in Iran. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Sound Strategic. I'm Tom Beckett, the Executive Director of the IISS Middle East, uh, based in Bahrain, and um, we're scheduling this um, Sound Strategic podcast ahead of this year's Manama Dialogue, which begins on Friday. Um, we specifically wanted to dedicate an episode to exploring the major developments in the Middle East over the course of 2020. To help me with this, I'm joined by Hassan Al-Hassan and Camille Lons. Hassan is, a research fellow, is the Research Fellow for Middle East Policy at the IISS. He's currently in London, but he will presently be joining us here in Bahrain in early 2021, uh, whilst Camille is a Research Associate here with me in Bahrain, and her particular focus is Horn of Afro- Africa and China Gulf relations. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you, Tom, for having us. Great. Okay. So, um, I, I, just as a reminder for people, um, we set we every year we set a theme for the for the Manama Dialogue, and this year's one is power and rules, competition for influence in the Middle East. But what's overshadowed 2020 is the uh, COVID 19 pandemic. Uh, And even though um, international travel restrictions were uh, applied, borders were closed, um, and there has been significant um, uh, implications of the uh, uh, pandemic, um, the competition has continued throughout. Um, But saying that, it's worth, first of all, looking at what are the effects of the the pandemic, uh, both for security, but also uh, the economic fallout. Hassan, perhaps if I could turn to you first, and the first question would be, has um, the COVID pandemic, has it further destabilized the region? Um, and secondly, what do you think is the economic fallout of the pandemic? Sure. Thank you very much, Tom. And it's a real pleasure to um, to be here with you. I think it's um, the COVID pandemic has most certainly I think, further destabilized the region on on multiple fronts. Uh, I think as far as the economic front uh, is concerned, obviously the first order effects of the pandemic in terms of uh, the effect on the population, on people's health, uh, on uh, consumption patterns, as well as the lockdowns that have had to be enforced in order to contain the spread of the disease. I think these have had, of course, a, a very serious adverse effect uh, on the uh, economies of the different uh, countries of the region. Uh, but I think as far as the oil-producing countries are, are concerned, for example, the second-order effects uh, of the uh, 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 really the, the decline in global oil prices that we saw as a result of the economic slowdown, uh, that itself was the result of these uh, lockdown measures uh, the changes in people's consumption patterns and, and the general slowdown of economic activity. I think that these second order effects have also been uh, extremely consequential for the oil producing countries, uh, such as the GCC countries. Uh, and at some point, we even saw oil prices uh, very momentarily uh, slide down into negative territory. And I think that was a historic moment uh, uh, for everyone uh, around the world. So obviously, uh, I think oil prices have been... Uh, um, um, uh, one of the key economic uh, consequences uh, of the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, this has knock-on effect as well for the uh, remainder of the region, because the Gulf states are important sources of uh, capital, of investments, 
uh, of uh, financial flows that then, that then circulate into the rest of the region. And so uh, everyone's going to be feeling the bite, not only the oil producing countries, uh, but even those countries that depend on tourism, for example, uh, 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 in order to make a living. Uh, I think this raises some very important questions for policymakers and planners, uh, especially in the Gulf. Uh, I think it raises the need to reassess the economic visions uh, that have been uh, put in place by almost all of the Gulf countries uh, and that center on the free flow of goods and people uh, across borders. Partly the desire to invest in tourism uh, and in logistics and transportation, uh, global aviation, uh, positioning themselves as hubs and centers for uh, global aviation and, and logistics and so on. All of these are likely to be reassessed uh, in the um, uh, uh, given in light of the uh, coronavirus pandemic. Excellent. I mean, I'd like to just, um, if I could explore that a little bit further, because I think your um, your assessment of, of the the, oil, the effect on the oil prices clearly there's a there's a there was a there was a two pronged reason for that. One was the pandemic, and uh, and that just exacerbated um, what was already low oil prices, um, which of course um, still provides the majority of the of the uh, GDP for most of the countries of the region, including Bahrain, where it's fifty percent, and they and there's little to little little oil to actually produce. Um, in terms of the, the, the visions, um, you, as you said, uh, based on uh, tourism, uh, travel and trade, uh, and with something that I think you and I previously have discussed about the regionalization of supply chains, can you just expand a bit more about where you think um, economic policy may have to go? Should the, I suppose in shorthand, should the, should the visions that every country has, should they be accelerated in the same direction or or do they need to change them i think this will depend on um several factors uh, that we do not necessarily have a very good understanding of just yet so for example how quickly we're able to uh, ride out the the pandemic how effective vaccines are going to be so if we do end up with a successful effective vaccine that can be administered widely uh, at some point in 2021 then it becomes somewhat realistic to double down on those visions and sort of, you know, retrench and, and perhaps uh, uh, pursue them further. Uh, it might make sense to revive plans uh, to uh, uh, invest in tourism, uh, trade, aviation, uh, transportation, logistics, and so on. Um, but I think that if the effects of the coronavirus pandemic are more protracted, uh, if we don't end up with a, a very successful means of containing uh, uh, um, the pandemic and, and perhaps even exterminating it or eliminating it in the very near future, then these questions become very pressing. However, I wonder whether policymakers at the moment have the bandwidth and the, the, the capacity really to, to think ahead uh, um, um, on, on such a long sort of in a long term perspective, um, I think there are immediate concerns uh, that are far more pressing, especially on a fiscal level. Uh, so, for example, um, uh, you know we've seen uh, uh, quite a bit of noise coming out of the OPEC plus grouping on how to coordinate production cuts on what happens in January uh, when the uh, um, uh, current agreement expires how to deal with Libyan 
oil supplies coming back online now that uh, the Libyan National Army's blockade on uh, Libyan oil exports uh, uh, has come to an end and so on. So all of these are raising uh, extremely pressing issues for the oil-producing countries, including the GCC states, uh, uh, that they will need to address even before they they start thinking about long-term plans and visions such as the uh, economic visions that we've been talking about. Great, and and I think um, before we before I hand over to to Camille to get her perspective, it might just um, the 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 destabilization question was was not simply economic de- destabilization. Um, have you got any comments at this stage, noting that we'll probably pick it up a bit with some of the um, establishment of diplomatic relations that we'll talk about later? But have you got any comment about the effect of the pandemic on any of the ongoing conflicts? I mean, again, as as we look at them, um, the Houthi remain active. Only yesterday, I think it was, they launched a, a, a missile which hit uh, Jeddah. Um, yes, Libya, there has been some movement, but it's still in a, in a state of conflict. Syria remains locked in where it is. Um, has the pandemic um, had any had any internationally noticeable effects, or is it still just? And I hate to use the expression business as normal for these conflicts. I think the COVID-19 pandemic um, and and its effect on regional conflicts uh, really could go in in either one of two directions. Um, On the one hand, one could imagine that the COVID-19 pandemic uh, could bring together different warring factions uh, around some form of agreement uh, modus vivendi, etc., uh, in order to uh, address the collective issue of responding to the pandemic and containing the public health fallout. We've seen early indications that may perhaps be linked to the COVID-19 pandemic in a sense, uh, 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 positive indications in Yemen uh, uh, pertaining to a prisoner swap, um, early signs that there may be some progress in the talks on Libya. Uh, and so on. But I think on the other hand, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has most certainly exacerbated the humanitarian situation in many of these conflict zones. Uh, I think it has constrained the ability of uh, protection relief agencies, including the UNHCR, um, to deliver uh, relief and humanitarian assistance to people on the ground. Uh, I think the UNHCR uh, is reporting that um, this year has been the lowest in terms of uh, refugee resettlement uh, over the past two decades. Uh, so I think this points to the real logistical difficulties that the COVID-19 pandemic uh, has created uh, for people who are living in the ground, who need to access uh, relief and humanitarian assistance, really in order to go about their their daily lives. So we're seeing these effects and counter effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. How they ultimately pan out, I think, will depend on the local context, on the ability of different local uh, and uh, actors and their regional and global sponsors to broker uh, 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 at least temporary ceasefire agreements and on the ability of different protection agencies to raise funds on the one hand uh, from global and regional donors, uh, and on the other hand, to be able to deploy them to people who need them uh, on the ground. Excellent. Thank you. very. That's that's great. I think what we um, haven't seen at the beginning of the pandemic, if you remember, the UN Secretary General encouraged everyone to, to bring in ceasefires. I guess um, most national responses turned inwards about how they would deal with, with, the, with the health fallout of the pandemic rather than 
dealing with the internationalized conflicts that we see. But Camille, um, returning back to the original uh, piece, um, whether whether the pandemic has destabilized the region, how do you see it when you look from from outside to inside? You know, whether it's from a Chinese perspective or, or wherever, um, or indeed with it from 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 how it affects the the Horn of Africa and what's going on there. Thank you, Tom. Uh, so, as Hassan was saying, um, economic shocks always come with or far-reaching political and security ramifications, and it is still early to to really make an assessment of this. As we're still starting, we're only starting now to see these uh, these political uh, and security ramifications uh, unfold. Um, maybe just before to reply to your question, coming back a little bit to the to the Gulf region and to the to the oil price uh, crisis. This is going to have far-reaching consequences, political consequences, uh, domestically for these countries. Um, and the COVID pandemic here is not really a shift, but more reinforcing already existing trends. Um, the oil price war between Saudi Arabia and, and Russia in, in March, April is, is quite revealing of a deeper long-term transformation of, of global energy markets. And so even if Saudi Arabia has reaffirmed its leadership over these markets and has managed to, to bring back Russia to the negotiation table and, and has hardly hit its competitors, especially shape producers, the, the challenge of decreasing all revenues is not going to go away. Um, and and um, Gulf countries have been trying to address this challenge for some time now. They have unrolled ambitious national strategies to diversify their economies, but uh, uh, the, the current crisis has really revealed how much works remain on this front. And and this is going to have important uh, domestic political ramifications as we see a transformation in, in the relationship between the state and the society, what we call the, the rentier social contract and uh, and what the, the population is expecting uh, from the state. We've seen that uh, a lot of Gulf countries, for example, have uh, enforced difficult uh, austerity measures Saudi Arabia has tripled its its value added tax uh, to to fifteen percent. So so this will definitely have uh, important uh, political repercussion on the domestic politics. Um, on a regional perspective, um, a lot of those Gulf states have um, until now gained a lot of political influence through the the disbursement of of humanitarian aid or or different types of financial supports to the region, to the Middle East, but also uh, to East Africa, uh, to the Mediterranean, to Asia. And, and this economic crisis uh, and, and the, the shrinking of their financial reserves uh, are going to, to limit substantially uh, the, the, the due economic tools uh, that they were able to, to extend, uh, to, to, um, to, to expand their, their geopolitical influence in their neighborhood. Um, and then if we, if we expand the scale a bit, uh, a bit wider and we look at, uh, at great power politics, um, uh, I'll probably come back to this later in the conversation, but, but this crisis has also compound, it's, it's compounding already, um, ongoing transformations in the way Middle Eastern countries are balancing their relationship with the U.S. and with other players, including China. Um, and, and I think the way the U.S. has been reacting to the crisis, the fact that it has been quite reluctant to, to play a leadership role um, uh, on a global scale during, during the pandemic, and, and the way this has contrasted also with China's very active 
mask diplomacy. Um, this has reinforced the feeling among Middle Eastern countries that they should not rely anymore only on, on the US, uh, on the US umbrella. Absolutely. Uh, Camille, Camille, that's, that's a, it's a great point um, uh, that um, the, the, the historic um, sort of bulwark of the United States for security is, um, is somewhat questionable. Um, you know, the, the, the uh, President Trump's administration has been in some ways transactional and President Biden's uh, looks like it'll take a, a different approach, although both intend, it appears, um, to have a same um, reducing of, of the military presence in the region. I suppose the question is, how serious is China in um, taking the place of the United States? I mean, we, you know, we had that announcement, Iranian announcement of investment of whatever it was, 400 million over however many years, which quite a lot of commentators, including you, I think, were uh, questioned whether it was um, whether it was real money or not. So so how serious is China in uh, re replacing the United States as a security guarantor? Well, uh, on the question of replacing the US as a security guarantor, I don't think that China is really interested in this, uh, definitely not. Uh, but um, but it has uh, it has uh, gained a lot of influence, economic influence in the region, and that should not be underestimated either. Uh, through, uh, uh, of course, it is a major uh, client of the energy exports of the region, but it has also diversified its economic footprint. Uh, through uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, investing in infrastructure, but also uh, as we are uh, working with my one of my colleagues, Maya Nguyen's, on uh, China's digital Silk Road, um, it has uh, invested quite importantly in uh, in the digital infrastructure of the region, and uh, it has become quite uh, influential on this front, and uh, and this is providing China with quite interesting political leverage that should be that should be addressed uh, so the question is less about either whether china is going to replace the us as a security guarantor because it has shown until now that it was not interested that its core um, foreign policy interests remains closer to home in the in the asia pacific and that the middle east remains a, a region that seems uh, complicated and 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 far uh, far from its uh, core uh, interests uh, until now, um, but um, and and also from from a Middle Eastern perspective, uh, a lot of Middle Eastern um, leaders are are very aware of this as well, and they know that China is not uh, willing to play this role, and for this reason, they they are um, they are very attached to the U.S. and they are very uh, uh, aware that the U.S. remain their their main ally here. But uh, on an economic point of view, China is making important headways, and this is going to have also important strategic ramifications that the U.S. and other actors should closely watch. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, uh, Camille. Um, I think it will 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 leave um, at this stage um, the the uh, impact of the of the pandemic uh, for the region, and uh, and we'll move on to what was probably. Um, well, one of the most significant developments that we've seen in 2020, um, you know, if we if we remember um, when uh, President Trump administration came in, 
they would solve the um, Palestinian uh, problem, that uh, they would have a solution for that, they would make a deal of the century. Uh, Bahrain itself hosted the Peace to Prosperity Workshop, uh, um, uh, for uh, which was supposed to be a precursor to the plan, and then indeed the plan was was laid on the table, um, and it didn't get a particularly good reading. Um, and then shortly after that, or uh, slightly after that, in September of this year, um, we saw the United Arab Emirates, um, as, they, as the, the parlance has been normalizing uh, with Israel, um, I think in, in better terms, it's United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and now Sudan establishing diplomatic relations with Israel. Uh, but it's, it's, it's significant and it is important. Um, but Hassan, again, perhaps going to you first, why do you think it happened? Um, and what do you think it's going to do to the region in security terms? It's possible to answer the question of why it happened um, in, in multiple ways. But I think one way in which to do so is to look at the way uh, all of these different regional antagonisms have been shaping uh, over the past year or so, uh, where we've seen uh, the some of the Gulf states, especially uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, um, wanting to, I think, bring themselves closer with Israel in the face, really, and to confront a shared and common threat, which is, of course, uh, Iran primarily, but but not exclusively. Uh, and I think uh, part of the reason why this happened is that there is a palpable sense that uh, many of these uh, uh, regional but non-Arab players, Iran, Turkey especially, uh, have become increasingly aggressive, uh, have become increasingly assertive uh, in their presence across conflict zones. Uh, we've seen Turkey uh, uh, being involved, of course, in, in, in Syria, in uh, Libya uh, asserting itself uh, in the Mediterranean, uh, but also uh, uh, in the uh, uh, conflict uh, that's raging on between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia. And I think this really worries uh, policymakers and planners in the uh, in the Gulf who feel uh, uh, somewhat uh, encircled, especially at a time uh, when uh, U.S. commitment. Uh, to the security of the region, U.S. global leadership uh, appears to be in doubt. Uh, and I think this uh, really provides an incentive to come somewhat closer uh, to the other uh, regional non-Arab player uh, with whom uh, they share this threat perception vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran primarily, but also to some extent vis-a-vis -vis Turkey. That's, of course, namely Israel. Um, I think um, what this does is... Uh, this, I think, solidifies and, and crystallizes many of these regional antagonisms. They become much closer. Uh, they, they become much uh, easier to see. Uh, but I think what it also does is that it really signals the end of the so-called Arab consensus on the, on the Palestinian issue and how to address the Palestinian issue. Um, because on the one hand, uh, you have the opponents of um, the establishment of diplomatic relations with Israel – uh, who say that this is a departure from uh, the Arab Peace Initiative, uh, from the formula of uh, uh, land in return for peace, uh, and so on, which is the, the traditional formula, uh, so to speak, uh, that has characterized uh, the collective Arab approach 
uh, to the Palestinian issue over at least the past two decades. Um, but I think on the other hand, the proponents of this move say, listen, I mean, things on the, 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 the reality on the ground has changed beyond recognition. Uh, the two-state solution, uh, as it is on paper, no longer seems uh, possible in the in the same way. The Arab Peace Initiative um, um, is no longer uh, uh, producing the the effect. It's, it really is no longer, I think, uh, um, a, a viable platform, perhaps in the same way that it may have been uh, um, uh, two decades ago. Uh, and so, it's time to uh, try a new approach uh, to put to change the sequence uh, of things to put peace first and then try to resolve uh, 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 the Palestinian issue, come to an equitable resolution that can guarantee some sort of coexistence between the two uh, parties, to say the least. But I think there is also a privileging, a prioritization of the geopolitical uh, 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 antagonisms that is pitting these countries, the UAE, uh, Bahrain, and and Saudi Arabia, of course, alongside with Israel, against uh, Iran on the, on the one hand and uh, increasing Turkish assertiveness on the other. Absolutely. Um, uh, Camille, have you got anything that you'd like to add to what Hassan has said? And maybe I can then throw in a few things after that. Uh, um, sure. So um, to add a little bit to, to what Hassan was saying, uh, um, I think another uh, element to look at when, uh, when looking at this uh, this rapprochement with Israel is maybe from a from a domestic perspective as well. I think it's interesting to watch uh, to look at it from from the perspective of uh, renewed nationalism in uh, in those Gulf countries and uh, the attempt by the state to create an identity that no longer uh, relies or is no longer centered on the Arab or the or the Islamic ties. Uh, but rather on uh, on national and national interests, and um, in the case of Saudi, because uh, there are some uh, rumors going on about a meeting of Netanyahu with uh, with the Crown Prince. Um, this is one element that is interesting uh, to uh, that sheds an interesting light on on this move, um, and. Um, but I think it's 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 still um, I think we still have to look also at how the different um, states or like what this uh, normalization is is meaning for different countries and for example uh, Bahrain and the UAE uh, have uh, for the moment uh, the, the the normalization in these two countries is uh, is uh, taking a different uh, form. Uh, I think Bahrain is moving much more cautiously uh, for also uh, uh, reasons that are uh, that are uh, linked to its own uh, political culture and, and to its society, and for the UAE, the the the, the normalization has led very quickly to uh, to economic deals. So so it is interesting to see how the different Gulf countries or uh, how how the normalization is taking place in those different countries uh, based on their own uh, uh, national. Uh, um, politics and internal uh, internal politics. Indeed, absolutely. And I think um, it was clear when the Emirates um, uh, made its announcement and then subsequently when Bahrain made its announcement that uh, for both parties, the, the resolution of the, of the Palestinian uh, uh, issue was remained uh, very important to them. I think, as Hassan said, um, the, you, the, the, there was a sense that you couldn't just keep playing the same record. Um, and that someone had to take a step to to 
do things differently to find that just solution for the Palestinian people. Um, and of course, I suppose that comes back to the to the piece in that um, whilst it's now clear that you know that the Emirates has a strategy for establishing those relations, and so does Bahrain and the the more recent meetings of Bahrain to to put um, uh, extra extra pages to the original the Washington um, uh, um, agreement um, indicate that these countries um, have a strategy for how what they're going to do with Israel. Um, Aside from having the deals, um, it, it's uh, and and perhaps uh, greater economic ties, uh, we haven't yet seen what Israel might be thinking in any great sense, or, or if we have, I've missed it. Um, Hassan or Camille, have you got anything to? You know, both sides need a strategy, and we've we've seen one uh, from from Bahrain and the Emirates, but not so much perhaps from Israel. Um, maybe at the Manama dialogue, we'll get a better understanding of that. I certainly hope so. But in in advance of that, um, what what do you think um, Israel wants out of this? Uh, geographic closer proximity to Iran, um, as we know, Iran has always maintained that um, that the Arabian Gulf should be, uh, which it would not want to hear it being called, um, should always be should not have foreign forces in it. Previously, its 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 focus for that was the United States and then the UK and France. Now, of course, it might have um, Israelis much closer to it. Um, so, what do you think? Uh, you know, looking at it, what does Israel want out of this, and and what does Iran fear most? So, I think, in my opinion, the uh, I'm not a very close observer of Israeli politics, but I do think that um, there is a general legitimacy factor. Uh, a factor of regional and international legitimacy that I think is very important for Israel uh, across the political spectrum. I think Israel craves this kind of regional recognition uh, because, in a sense, it it bestows uh, um, some legitimacy. It naturalizes the... uh, 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 Really, it, it, it signals that Israel is accepted within its own neighborhood. And I think that for from from an Israeli perspective, uh, this is extremely important, and because Israel has uh, uh, felt ostracized uh, within its own region for for a very long time, but I think that there is a common, uh, um, uh, in addition to to uh, facing the the Iranian threat and so on, I think the uh, one of the common issues on which the two sides are going to have to collaborate very soon uh, is the question of uh, the incoming Biden administration, how it approaches the region, especially the question of the JCPOA uh, and engaging Iran. Because if we recall, uh, uh, under the Obama administration, the Israelis and the Gulf uh, states saw eye to eye, really, on the uh, potential regional ramifications uh, that could come out of the JCPOA, uh, especially uh, given the absence of clauses uh, or um, uh, really terms pertaining to Iran's networks of influence or even to its ballistic missiles. And of course, this may not be as big of a concern uh, to the Europeans or uh, to the Americans who are out of reach uh, of Iranian missiles for the most part, of course, the U.S. homeland, not uh, necessarily U.S. forces stationed in the region, including uh, in Iraq, who have been at the receiving end of Iranian missiles for quite some time. Uh, But I think um, that as far as these regional states are concerned, their own security priorities, primarily around 
um, networks of influence uh, and uh, ballistic missiles were, were not necessarily very adequately addressed by the JCPOA. And in fact, uh, I think they felt that Iran... Um, uh, was using the JCPOA as political cover in order to escalate uh, its uh, uh, regional activity, especially around networks of influence uh, and uh, the proliferation of, of arms and missile technologies uh, uh, to its clients in the region. Uh, so I think the question of how uh, the incoming Biden administration decides to engage Iran what it decides to do with all of the economic leverage that was built around the maximum pressure campaign. Um, I think these are questions that are going to be uh, um, highly worrisome uh, for policymakers in the Gulf and in Israel. And that's going to give them something uh, on which they can work together in Washington very, very soon. Indeed. Camille, comments? I, I would agree with, with Hassan, uh, especially on, on the question of uh, legitimacy for Israel, uh, and this is definitely, I think, a, a, a big win for Netanyahu, especially at the moment when he is facing also internal political difficulties at home. Um, this, uh, this promise that he made, uh, uh, of, of gaining, uh, of normalizing ties with Arab state is something that even himself probably wasn't uh, expecting to, to obtain. Uh, and, uh, he obtained it without any, condition. Uh, he only even uh, uh, said that it was on the condition of holding on annexation, but not even terminating it. So so I think from, from Netanyahu's perspective, it is, uh, it is a, a great win. Indeed. And, and um, I, you're, you're right. I mean, um, Israel clearly has, has had a, it, it is a presence. It is a recognized state. It's had definitely a dominant security presence in that part of the region but that diplomatic engagement has not been there. So it is, it is a big win for, the, for, for Netanyahu, um, enabled by um, President Trump's administration. I think, I mean, Hassan, I think you're right about the, um, uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the JCPOA and its limited focus. Uh, as all of the people who, in, who engaged in that, uh, the, the senior negotiators will remind us in 2012, um, the, the, the region was looking at what was euphemistically known as a third party strike on the Iranian nuclear capability. Um, and there had to be a way of avoiding that. Um, but never in the history of sanctions have been so much pressure been brought on one country, including Russia and China. That's why it was the either the E3 plus three or the P5 plus one, however you wanted to describe it. Um, but the only way that they felt that they could achieve that was by focusing narrowly on the um, on the on the um, nuclear capability and deliberately excluding the networks of influence and the and the ballistic missiles, it'll be interesting to see what happens. You know, the prognosis or certainly a uh, prediction is that the um, June elections in Iran uh, will not lead to a uh, more moderate government in Tehran, but in, indeed perhaps a a more hardline one, uh, making um, the challenge for the Biden administration even more complex. Um, but we're, we're shortly going to be running out of time. So, so it, we'll, we'll leave uh, that development, that interesting development, which has got a long way to play out, if nothing less. And I'm not going to ask you to predict because everyone else is doing it. Who's next in going to establish diplomatic relations with, with Israel? Uh, I think that's a game that none of us need play on this, uh, on this particular session. 
But uh, even worse prediction, because one should never predict what's going to happen in the Middle East, because it serves to confound you every time you get up in the morning. Um, but if you were looking at 2021, and I'll start with you, Camille, um, inshallah, we'll come out of a pandemic uh, with, uh, with vaccines that will help us get back to some semblance of pre-pandemic normality. Uh, but what do you think might uh, happen in 2021? Um, it's a big question. Um, keep it to whatever you want in your answer, and then we'll let Hassan um, have a go at it as, as well afterwards. Well, uh, I would say probably greater instability as, uh, as the consequence of the of the pandemic really unroll. Um, I would come back to to the point I was making about uh, the growing relationship with with China, as I think that this this is going to increasingly shape uh, regional politics. And uh, and I don't think that the Biden administration in itself is going to be a game changer in comparison uh, with with an election of Trump. Um, the U.S. is going to remain uh, ally closely with the with the with the Gulf states. But um, but this is a trend that has been ongoing for some time of Gulf states trying to diversify their relation their relationships, hedging their bets. And, and increasingly turning towards other powers. And as we're seeing the, the, the rivalry between the US and, and China escalates, uh, I think that this is going to put um, Middle Eastern states uh, under increasing pressure uh, to, to either pick a side or at the same time uh, intelligently balance their relations between, uh, between these different powers. And I think that this is going to become a, uh, a trend that is going to uh, increasingly shape uh, uh, regional politics. I think that's a really good point. Um, hedging may become more difficult as they go into the Biden administration. Hassan, what's your what's your perspective? Um, I think the one of the key analytical questions that I'll be asking myself again and again um, uh, over the next year is how the incoming Biden administration. Uh, balances its global and regional priorities that intersect uh, and that may sometimes contradict each other. So, for example, we know that the Biden administration prioritizes China and the Indo and the Indo Pacific. It prioritizes climate change, uh, and of course, you know, countries like Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, are uh, uh, even Israel are important targets of uh, Chinese economic influence. Uh, they're also given their status as major oil supply, uh, suppliers and major oil producers, uh, potentially important interlocutors uh, in a climate change conversation. Now, how do you balance that with uh, Biden's regional priority of re-engaging Iran through the JCPOA and what that might do to alienate these very same players, namely Saudi Arabia and the UAE, for example? So I think it will be interesting for me to see how the Biden administration resolves these contradictions and these tensions between its global and regional priorities. I think that's going to be a, a, a big question that I'm going to be asking myself. But personally, I'm, I tend to be quite pessimistic in thinking that uh, as we transition away from uh, a unipolar world where the U.S. Uh, is uh, very obviously and clearly dominant and preponderant in power terms, as uh, great power competition uh, um, increases and becomes more uh, uh, pronounced. I think the Middle East, very unfortunately, is going to continue to be 
uh, a battleground where competing global and regional powers will continue to hash it out uh, at the expense of uh, millions of uh, and millions of people who end up becoming refugees and internally uh, displaced persons uh, and so on. I, I absolutely agree with that. You know, as a as a as a former soldier, um, one always looks for gaps and seams. And when you lose um, the interest of a, of a unipolar power, or the unipolar power is no longer uni, um, then there are greater, there are more gaps and seams for people to exploit. And the exploitation of those can be both problematic and also um, full of risk. So um, I, I, think, I think we'll probably pull it to a close there. And I'd just like to thank you, Camille and Hassan, for a really fascinating conversation. Um, we'll be meeting very soon. Uh, at the Manama Dialogue. Um, but thank you for, for, for what your, your contribution today. Thank you, Tom. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And then for all of our um, listeners, uh, we hope you enjoyed the discussion as well. Um, please remember to follow, rate and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever, wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. Uh, and for more analysis of defence and security issues, be sure to follow the IISS on Twitter and LinkedIn or visit the IISS website. Thank you and see you next time.